Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, Christy. Hey, big cheese. (laughs) And I'm joined by Ben as well. Hey. And you're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. We've got a treat for you today. Christy's on location today. I sure am. Man. What, what location are you at? Like, no, our listeners can't see this, but like, you've got some stuffed animal, like, Can you see that one? There's like a leopard. Stuffed animals. Uh, what, um. what are they called? <laughs> They're not stuffed animals. <laughs> what? That's the first word that came into my head. It's not stuffed They're like, animal, They're deer heads and deer heads, leopard, uh, taxidermy stuff, taxidermy right? Taxidermy animals yeah, yeah. all behind me. Essentially stuffed and, animals. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. A friend of ours where, has a. Where is this? amazing ranch in New Mexico and invited us to come and um, yeah we're here for a couple of days and so a little my, vacation little vacation kids are out fly fishing right now and oh gonna ride gosh. some horses later and yeah wow. it's really a gift so I'm thankful to be able to be here yeah, and to join incredible. you guys I mean it's good oh, to yeah. like still kind of get to you get to do this as well which is best best of both worlds what you hope for on every vacation is <laughs> if you can be part of the, the podcast anyway well, okay well yeah. Well, today, uh, not only um, are we all together, three of us, enjoying each other, each other, but we're also listening to a podcast with uh, mm-hmm. a friend of ours, Dawson Vosberg. Uh, Dawson runs the Evangelical Labor Institute, and he's one of the people that listen. We interviewed a Swedish uh, the- theolo- uh, theology professor last year who mm-hmm. talked about what it's like to be a Christian in a, de- in a democratic socialist country. Mm-hmm. Um and Dawson reached out, and he he basically said, "Hey, 
there's actually a lot of Christian socialists around. And I was like, nope. I've been Did he told, say it super quiet? He was whispering like to me. Yeah, because you never know who's listening in. You never know. And, and I said, I don't believe yeah. you. Um, I've heard some really, really bad things about socialists. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, well, what, what if I come on to uh, your podcast and I yeah. um, maybe respond to some of those bad things and we can chat about it? Mm. So anyway, um, this is a little bit like going to a zoo and seeing an exotic animal like three or, you know, for many of us. Many of us have never heard from a, somebody who identifies uh, in an economic sense as a as some kind of socialist and somebody who loves Jesus and doesn't want to kill God. This is like, you know, mind-blowing right, for those, many of yeah, us. Yeah, those two things are, are uh, equated in many of our minds. Yeah, um, and, 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 a, and in our yeah. country, right? I mean, this is right. sort of the, the And there's prevailing. a reason for that, but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Dawson came on and he uh, talked about how he, I mean, in this interview, he talks mm-hmm. about how he became somebody who identifies some form of socialist by reading scripture. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. If I mean, if you're looking for something to blow your mind, make you really mad, put you to sleep, this is it. It can do yep. all three depending on where you're at. <laughs> depending on where you're at. Uh, and send, you know, send this one to your father-in-law if you want to <laughs> start a fight. No. Um, <laughs> not everybody's. But I, I, uh, I think it's an interesting, I mean, a lot of the reading that I've been doing this um, last mm. few years it, like it's fascinating to read about how uh, before mm-hmm. the the 60s and 70s, essentially, like evangelicalism mm-hmm. was associated with things that we normally think of as quite socialist or mm-hmm. you know sort of uh, those kinds of things. And so there there was a there was a real I don't think we talk about it in this um, interview that much, but there was a real intentional move to kind of uh, take evangelicals down a new path. Um, and yeah, so anyway, Dawson's got some great uh, historical um, and kind of economic stuff to say. Yeah, it's really helpful. So I'm excited to listen to it. I wasn't able to be with you, so I'm yeah. excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a good dude. Good All right, dude. anything we need to talk about? Anything we need to chat about? I don't about? think so. It's the it's the middle of March. Feels like there's light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. Yeah. I do feel so like if, if you needed us to tell you what month it was, that you're in more trouble than this podcast <laughs> yeah. can handle. Yeah. I'm just, thinking out, I'm just thinking out loud. It's the middle of March. <laughs> Lent, Lent is still with us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. I don't think there's anything else to announce. Well, then let's get into Dawson Vosper. <laughs> Enjoy the interview. Dawson Vosberg, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yep, I'm here with Ben too, and we are hey ta- we're talking today about uh, power and money mm-hmm. and economics and Christians, and we're going to talk about capitalism and socialism. So uh, put on your big girl pants, your big boy pants, and hold yep. on tight, Dawson. Hold on, hold on. Here we go, <laughs> Dawson. Will you give an introduction? to uh, our audience about who you are, what, um, who you are, what you do, and and why do you care about all this? Well, I'm Dawson Vosberg. I'm a PhD student in sociology at The Ohio State University. Um, I study uh, Christianity in the United States and how it intersects with capitalism and, and race and, you know, other sort of social phenomena. Uh, and... 
maybe more uh, relevant to this particular conversation, I've started with a few friends of mine, the uh, the Ever- Evangelical Labor Institute. So our goal at the Evangelical Labor Institute is to communicate ideas about economic egalitarianism uh, through sound biblical theology and and Christian thinking, because we believe that there's a strong uh, basis in the Christian tradition and in the scriptures for um, for a kind of economic justice that involves a much more equal system than we have right now. Yes. Hmm. All right. So, uh, Dawson, um, when did you decide to be a godless socialist? No, I. The, the, so we had Joel Haldorf on our podcast, and he uh, was from Sweden, and he's a professor of theology in Sweden. And uh, Sweden is a democratic socialist or social democracy. You know these words better than I do, Dawson. Right, you can right. Correct me. It's a social democracy, which means it has elements of socialism and elements of free capital or free market um, ideologies tied up in it. But uh, but he was he was naming something that I think is a little bit of a, uh, what is it, a unicorn, basically, for American Christians, which is there are thousands, if not millions, of Christians around the world who have less capitalistic, less free market beliefs and ideologies at work and love Jesus. And I think Mm -hmm. in our current cultural climate, that is sort of exasperatingly unthinkable for many Christians. Um, could you maybe speak a bit to, maybe tell us your story. Like, how did you, um, how did you get to a place where you began to question that, um, maybe the story that we're all, we all grew up in, which is like, you know, uh, capitalism is next to godliness, or it's the best, best economy and it's the most faithful to biblical. Like, wh- where did that become less and less persuasive for you? Yeah, I think it really started when I was in high school. So up until the seventh grade, I was homeschooled. Both of my parents have seminary degrees. I was read the Bible every day. And then after that, I was at a private Christian school um, where I was in Bible class every day, you know, from seventh grade through uh, 12th grade. I'd grown up completely steeped in, in the Bible and Christianity. And I think I was 16 or 17 um, when all of a sudden, it was basically pointed out to me one way or another um, all of the ways that the Bible talks about poverty and economics and how central um, care for the poor is and how strongly critical it is of, of wealth and gathering riches and the condemnations of the prophets, all of this sort of stuff. Like, obviously, I must have read it before, (laughs) but it was all of a sudden appearing and like, I, I, I almost felt like, Oh my gosh, like I've, I've never seen this before, even though I mm. must have seen this before, mm. yeah. you know, because there's, you know, generally sort of some cultural blinders that that sort of make things invisible or make you want to explain things away. Well, they couldn't have really, you know, meant all that. It can't, it can't imply that in our modern mm. day. So around then I started asking the questions, why is, you know, uh, why isn't ending poverty not a, a big priority for a lot of Christians in the same way that um, ending pornography or yeah. abortion is for for so many Christians? Because you know, the, those kinds of issues have a, a major place. But you you look at the Bible, and you can't help but see. I mean, from beginning to end, condemnation of 
of uh, people who gather up wealth for themselves while leaving mm-hmm. other people starving. Yes. Um, and then it was uh, the year after high school, I lived in a, a neighborhood in Houston, Texas, where the uh, median income is about $13,000 a year. Wow. And um, I mean, it's one thing to know conceptually that there's poverty in the United States. Right. And then there's an, it's another thing to just live in it and feel the neglect and the lack mm-hmm. of care. Um, yeah. And of course that's also bound up in, in racism. It was an o- almost entirely black neighborhood um, that had oh, been yeah. that way since the 1800s, you know, because Houston is, is in the South. Um, but I, I think the combination of seeing what the Bible says and seeing what the world is really like, um, I mean, it kind of broke me in a way I couldn't go back. And all along, my motivation has never been to abandon Christianity. My, my, uh, my goal has been to become more like Jesus, to be more faithful to Christianity, to the yeah. scriptures. And I think that... Um, Sticking around with the status quo is not, <laughs> it's not the way to be the most, fa- most faithful um, when, when you look around and you see how desperate people's yes. lives are. So I hear two mm. things. I hear um, what led you to begin to ask questions about our prevailing economic arrangement and Christian's commitment to it was reading the Bible and experiencing firsthand injustices created by our system. Yes. All right. Well, yeah, and I think just to just to add to that, I mean, we we recently interviewed um, Esau McCulley, uh, who wrote um, uh, the book Reading While Black, and it basically highlights, I think, some of what you're talking about that our social location affects what we see in the scriptures, and what we're unable to see, and what we're able to see. Um, and that's the other thing that I hear in that story is you'd been reading your the Bible the, your whole life, but part of what helped you see new things in the Bible, like things that, I'm sure I read this before, but why didn't this land yeah, for me in the way that it does now? But part, part of that is living in this neighborhood. Part of that mm-hmm. is like your real life connection to people for whom, like you're, you're, you were in a different social location and kind of experiencing the empathy of being connected to people uh, whose lives are very different from yours allows mm-hmm. you to see new things in the scriptures. Um, which I, which I think I, don't, I just want to highlight that I think I think that's really really important because um, a lot of times I think we read the scriptures and we think I'm just seeing the Bible I just kind of see what's there um, you know but if that was true uh, then you know once once you read through the Bible you know it'd be kind of like reading a good novel it's like well you know maybe you read it again it's like the brothers Karamazov like how many times you need to read it <laughs> you know um, but but I think uh, when it's the scriptures like reading again from a place of like a new social location you, you're able to see new things about what God is doing uh, and saying yeah. through the scriptures so yeah mm-hmm. well Dawson maybe um, before I can like as you talk about, I, w- I want to get into sort of how Scripture describes our relationship to money, and what it looks like then to organize uh, socially, make social arrangements that lead that lead to um, faithfulness and flourishing with our resources. But first, I really would love hmm. it. I think there's a lot of really shallow, caricatured understandings of words like capitalism, socialism, communism. Can you? Give us, hmm. maybe start with capitalism, and just name briefly 
like what is capitalism like what is that how do you describe that economic arrangement so capitalism is first of all defined by the productive goods in society so the stuff that makes more stuff that's hmm. owned privately so there are people who own all of the factories and machinery and computers and you know now software and ideas and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and in contrast to something like feudalism where you have people bound to land for generations who i mean don't get me wrong their lives were not good this this is not an endorsement of feudalism by any stretch but um they were essentially attached to that land across generations, even if they they were not in sort of ownership. And then there were other sort of communal lands on which you could, like, graze cows and things like that. Um, there's not really any of that in capitalism. It's all been moved into the hands of private owners. And uh, the other side of it is what what people call free labor. And what that means is basically you're not um, like in an agrarian society where you're uh, – you basically work the land to survive. You go out and you sell your labor to somebody who owns stuff to make more stuff. Hmm. That's, that's the basics okay. of it. And so then the people who make money in the system are people who sell their labor and the people who own the stuff to make more stuff. They sell the stuff that they made with the labor that they hired and they're able to reap profits from that. Yeah. So that's that's the basics of capitalism. Yeah. All right. So then, yeah, I think it's it's important. I think to name it's not the same thing as business. It's not the same thing as entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Like it's not right. That's that's been happening for centuries. Right. Capitalism is a very specific arrangement about how we allocate goods and resources. Yeah, people making things and trading things has always been around. This is not right. just making things and trading things. There are a lot more. Right. Uh, qualifications, particularly, you know, it's it's private ownership, which you know has not private ownership rights that are exclusive and permanent are not a feature of every society everywhere. And right. then people, basically, everybody selling their labor in order to feed themselves rather than any sort of subsistence or anything like yes. that. So my labor yes. then is some is my commodity that I get returned for. Uh, rather than my mm-hmm. labor directly contributes to my survival. Right. And this is key. There are so many people who have to sell their labor because they don't own any things to make more things. That's me. It's Right. right. It's built in <laughs> that most people <laughs> do not own things to make more things. Um, and, and thus it's kind of a feature and not a bug that that wealth ownership is concentrated into a fairly small number of hands. So you could maybe imagine a system in which all of the, each individual privately owned about the same amount of stuff to make more yes. stuff. But, you know, and there's, there are groups of people who, you know, call that distributism and, and things like that. But that actually makes it harder to, if you have roughly equal distributions of stuff to make more stuff, but it's privately held you would basically have to shrink the economy quite a lot. Okay. Hmm. All right. So that's capitalism. Uh, Then let's talk about socialism. How does, maybe describe socialism 
because we most of us know capitalism, or at least have lived in capitalism most of our lives. How do you distinguish socialism from capitalism? So socialism, historically, is a, a development after capitalism. It doesn't exist prior to capitalism because it sort of builds on the almost builds on the foundation of the historical trajectory. So it's not going back to feudalism or something like that. It's not going back to so, sort of primitive uh, agricultural society. It's still industrial. Um, but the idea is instead of having all of the stuff to make more stuff owned by a few private people who then can do with that basically what they will, you bring the stuff to make more stuff under social control one way or the other. That's a very broad definition. You can do it a whole lot of yeah. ways. So maybe you d- you delineate then between three kinds of three kinds of uh, socialism, uh, at least. One is authoritarian socialism. The second is, um, I think you call it, well, one is social democracy. And then the third, I'm trying to remember, democratic socialism. Are you thinking, yeah. right, So authoritarian socialism, democratic socialism, and social democracy. Uh, could you maybe just give us a quick double click on those three things and how they're different. Sure. So authoritarian socialism, it's mainly about how do you move from capitalism to socialism? In other words, how do you take the stuff that makes more stuff and bring it under social control rather than private control? So authoritarian socialism, generally the answer to that is, well, you seize it in violent revolution. That's, you know, how the Bolsheviks did it in Mm-hmm. and uh, started the Soviet Union and everything like that. Yeah. Um, and then how do you manage it? So uh, the sort of authoritarian socialist answer is generally you do central planning. You have uh, basically experts allocate who needs what and will make all of this, the decisions centrally mm-hmm. um, about how production goes. And the big problem with that is that you technically have social control, but it's kind of just the government doing stuff with ordinary people having just about as much influence as they currently do under capitalism about, (laughs) you know, how this all goes, right? They, they have very little control. They took it over in the name of the people, but it's it's really just another dude in charge of it. Right. That's, that's the big issue with authoritarian (laughs) socialism. Uh, Democratic socialism posits that both you should, um, in the process of socializing the stuff that makes more stuff, mm-hmm. you ought to do it democratically rather than Autocratically. by, you know, blood in the streets. Yeah. Um, and then in management, it should be democratic as well, right? People should have a say over their economic life is the basics of that. Okay. Social democracy is a lot of people want to draw really big distinctions between social democracy and democratic socialism, but they're, depending on who you ask, almost interchangeable Mm. ideas. Mm. So social democracy is uh, basically a gradualist process of saying like, okay, well, we don't want to disruptively all at once just uh, seize all of the property of the rich people and just take it away from them right now. So the way we do it is, is we build institutions over time that are democratically controlled 
that can essentially promote economic inequality, or not inequality, equality. So hmm. things like the welfare state uh, of, of a certain design are, are social democratic institutions, or say a, a social wealth fund, something like what Norway has. Uh, Norway owns about, uh, the government owns about $200,000 per person in wealth. So that comes out to about a trillion dollars. Hmm. Um, and that wealth is owned collectively. The government can't just do whatever it wants with it. There are specific uh, rules and regulations for what they do. Mostly it's invested. Yeah. And you um, take the dividends from those investments and they invest that in their social spending. So you could also uh, conceivably do something more like what Alaska has done. Alaska also has the socialist institution of a wealth fund. Um, where hmm. they take the dividend every year and just give it to everybody uh, universally. Every man, woman, woman and child what? in Alaska gets free money every year. Do yeah. we have because is that from the from the oil? <clears throat> well, it was seeded it, with oil just, funds, but it's invested okay. all over the place. So you can you can seed those things all sorts of ways. But yeah. that's a that's a way that multiple um, yeah uh, multiple people have thought. Okay, this is how we could. Um, bring things under more democratic control is basically you have the government buy stocks, bonds, other assets. Yeah. Hmm. And also taxes have to be part of that, right? Right. So you could... We we have to say like, hey, after this amount of money, we're going to tax you at this rate. You know, this is where we get some of the, you know, 70% after $10 million. I mean, all that that kind of stuff. Basically, like that's how you gather some of that uh, capital, right? right? You can tax income. That's usually done to finance hmm. spending. So okay. you're you're financing something like uh, a child uh, child allowance. You would fund that through income taxes. Um, but something like a, a a wealth fund, you might tax through uh, wealth taxes. So essentially, you're okay. Um, so not not yeah. any one person can get extremely wealthy after a certain point. It's like okay, that's enough wealth. Yeah. Let's share the rest of this. Right. It's a it's a sort yeah. of it, it depends on how you design it, but there are uh, okay. a wide number of designs, and eventually a, f- a sort of fully sorry fully democratic socialist or full uh, once social democracy is complete, you would in in the sort of like ideal future have all of the assets controlled basically democratically, either through um, that sort of fund, or you could also Mm -hmm. have uh, in combination co-determination, which is basically where, where workers are represented on boards of directors. Cause those, those are the people who make the decisions about what gets made and where, Um, or for smaller, smaller businesses, you could have worker cooperatives where, all of the workers basically own this sort of smaller business when it's not, it doesn't make sense for the, you know, for the federal yeah. government to be controlling your little restaurant sure. yeah. in, right. in Indiana. Well, uh, <laughs> a lot, tons of questions. The first is, does the Tea Party know that Sarah Palin oversees a social democracy? Um, <laughs> the second is, uh, now that we have sort of, I, what, what strikes me is when I typically hear about socialism in political and religious discourse in America. What I, now I, I think I'm able to slot it as what's typically talked about as uh, socialism writ large is authoritarian socialism. So Venezuela, yes. Cuba, yeah. Yeah. Uh, North Korea, 
China, Soviet, Soviet Union. Yeah, is that fair? And that's yeah. that is sort of the boilerplate. This is what socialism does. And you breaking out authoritarian socialism, social democracy, and uh, democratic socialism. So those are the three. I, yeah, I'm confusing them. But those three, it helps me understand, okay, so places like Norway, places like Sweden, uh, mm-hmm. they also have mm-hmm. elements of uh, wealth and labor relationships that are more closely aligned with a socialistic understanding than a, demo, uh, than a capitalistic understanding. Um, yes. That helps us have words now and frames. Can we go back to Scripture because I, I think I think one of the things that sup, that surprises me is is the link between socialism and godlessness, or capitalism mm-hmm. and godliness. And I, I want to throw just a few thoughts at you, and then have you maybe uh, correct me or or unpack them if you want to. Um, the first is there seems to be this allergy in America to someone other than me determining what happens to my money. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so the issue isn't helping the poor. The issue is you're, you're, do, you're telling me I have to do it, and then you're inefficient in doing it. So the, so the argument right. isn't, no, God doesn't care about the poor. The argument is God does care about the poor, but, the, but what's worse than that is for a large organization to care for the poor on my behalf, because then I no longer have any agency in it, A, and B, uh, you just waste money. Right? Am I getting that argument right? Mm. You guys hear that? Yes. Yeah, I hear that. The inefficiency of the government, um, you know, it should all be just like charitable. You should t- we should just take care of the poor through our like private donations. You know, the government shouldn't take care of the poor. Churches should take care of the poor. I hear yeah. that a lot. Right. Like, how do you respond to that, Dawson? For that particular question, I think it's useful to think about the question behind the question, right? Where does where does poverty originate from? <laughs> what, why do we have so many <laughs> poor people to begin with, right? Um, and And it's important to remember that economies don't spring out of the earth they're human inventions. They're invented by sinful, fallible human beings like us. Yes. And they're perpetuated by sinful, fallible human beings like us, right? We have to keep doing it in order for it to keep going. So basically, what this means is that when there's poverty, it's because our economic institutions are built such that poverty will arise, right? That's how it is under, hmm. under capitalism, uh, hmm. Part of the big problem with capitalism and poverty is that it's um, it only distributes income to people who own the stuff that makes more stuff or people who sell their labor, right? Yep. But that's not all the people that exist in a society. Right. That's only about 50%, in fact. The other 50% is largely children, elderly yes. people, people who have yes. work-limiting disabilities, uh, students like other, there are just uh, quite a lot of people who, for very legitimate reasons, don't sell their labor or don't own a whole lot of stuff that makes more stuff. So, where do they get their income? Well, most people answer from their families, but there are some people who don't have uh, 
families, first of all, that make a whole lot of market income to cover them. And second of all, the number of non-workers in a household isn't evenly distributed, right? So, Matt, take my household. We have two people who earn market incomes, right? I get, I mean, I get a little stipend from the university. It's not a huge Mm -hmm. market income, but my wife also (laughs) makes an income and we don't have any non-workers in the house. So we're pretty well off, you know, even Mm. though we, we, we don't have to make all of that much money to cover what, what we need. Yeah. But Matt. I'm assuming you have a couple of, uh, l- at least one little yeah. non-worker. Did you see my I little non-worker? <laughs> running by. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're, you're a non-worker. Um, yeah. So all of a sudden, you have to cover the needs of somebody who cannot contribute financially. Yeah. So ultimately what this means is capitalism disincentivizes you from being around non-workers. Right? From having children. Having from kids. From caring yeah, for yeah. Your, uh, your elders, for... Uh, caring for disability people with disabilities, you're essentially yes. naturally punished for all of those things. But because those things yes. are normal people, things that human beings do, they're part of what it means to be a human being. People keep on doing them, <laughs> right? So you right. end up with very high <laughs> poverty. So in yeah. in brass tacks, wow. what you end up with under under capitalism, if you didn't have a welfare state in the United States, about a quarter of people would be poor. If there were zero, so basically we can do this. We can take away taxes and transfers and imagine, okay, what would what would poverty be like here if we just had people getting money from selling their labor, selling their labor. or owning yeah. stuff? It would be wow. a quarter of Americans. Yeah, and it's not really any better in a lot of other countries that have much lower poverty than poverty than the U.S. Right? Finland has about six percent poverty. If they didn't have a welfare state, it'd be about 34%. Mm. Because, you know, there are non-workers. There's always going to yeah. be non-workers. Yeah. So we've yeah. designed... The way we design we've, institutions yeah. produces economic results, right? It's not yes. just how individuals behave, right? right? An individual can have a child in Finland and not be poor, but that same individual would have a child in the U.S. and they would be poor. It's yeah. all because of the design of... Uh, our economy, yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. I love that you've... Uh, I love that you've pulled the question back to the assumptions that we make and I think that's a huge assumption that economies just spring from the earth or they're self-evident or this just is, I mean, this is Adam Smith, right? This is the invisible hand. Like that mythology, I've been reading, we, we were talking before we hit record, I've been reading this book that uh, Dawson, you read, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber. And in there, he talks about how, the, how powerful hmm. this mythology is that the market is this sort of like invisible 
force, almost God, that just sort of sprung from the earth and is self-evident and is just true and automatically good and it moves things in the right. But it's not. It actually was designed very intentionally. And so I love what you're doing there of saying, because oftentimes our conversations are just, what do we do with poor people? Like, how do we fix the problem? Should churches donate? Should we have these programs or should the government do that kind of thing? And Mm-hmm. And what's behind that is the assumption that the way that we've already designed our economy is just given and mm-hmm. we can't do anything about it. When when you're saying, actually, we can do something about it, people have been doing something about it. Um, right. And that the, the way that we have, the, our, the economy that we have has been designed. It wasn't given to us by God. Right. And you can see that God actually did command the design of an economy in the Old Testament <laughs> law. And what did All he right. do? He built in institutions to make sure... That yes. poor people could eat, even if they, you know, had yes. been widowed, mm-hmm. if they were orphaned, if they were a stranger and foreigner. Like, I mean, we don't want to replicate the economy of the Old Testament because we live in a very different time. We have an adu- industrial rather than an agrarian right. economy. Right. God was working with people who lived in slave societies, and he accommodated to that in in the law. But... um we can we can even see in scripture that these are not foreordained foreordained yeah. things yeah yeah we can see god's heart in the midst of the things that he does design in terms of like i'm thinking about gleaning on the edges of the field um you know the the jubilee year you know and every, every the sabbath year like everybody gets their land back like even if something terrible tragic happened it's only going to be terrible and tragic for a few years and then and then everything goes back to zero. Right, right. Um, yeah. I yeah, love that. So what yeah. I hear, uh, we're getting into another question I want to ask you, but, but what I hear you saying, Dawson, is that in order to answer the question of is it individual responsibility or is it a corporate organizational responsibility to take care of the poor, first we have to ask the question, what has caused the poverty? Um, and I hear exactly. you saying that the system, the structure, the architecture of the economy contributes to the poverty, so then we... If instead of just giving poor people money, either from individuals or from uh, organizations, maybe we could restructure the architecture to create less poverty. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, the, and the architecture is who gets money. So ultimately, the the solution is to give give people money. And the question is, who do we give mo- people money? Elon Musk. You know, the and right. The, don't don't no. we give him the money? Uh, Listen, Dawson, what, this is what how people it works, do we man. give you money give Elon to. Musk more money, and then he creates more jobs, and then everybody gets more money. Well, the problem That's is, nice. you know, you can't solve it with more jobs because most of yeah. the people in that fifty percent of people who don't earn any income are people we don't want to get give jobs to. We don't want to give jobs. I, to I got an idea though. I got an idea. Or Ch- to child elderly labor. people, it can be cheap. We don't have to have good conditions. They'll work hours and hours. Uh-huh. A modest proposal. <laughs> they can't, they a can't modest do anything proposal. about it. Yeah. Okay, okay. So yes. here's here's the here's the pushback that I was taught to give. It kind of just erupts um, unbidden from sort of my subconscious. If you give people money who don't earn it, mm. you will reward and make those people lazy. I I think that just narrative, like the wealthy. Yeah, that, right. <laughs> that narrative has a several has several problems, yeah, yeah. right? The wealthy, yeah. so like let's say the Walton children, they inherited Walmart. They didn't work to build that. You can yeah. argue also a lot of people uh argue that 
even their father didn't work to build that. He basically owned the stuff, and as other people he hired built it, he profited off mm-hmm. of it, right? But mm-hmm. it's undeniable that the Walton children did not build what they have, right? Mm-hmm. So they have huge amounts of money that makes them more money, and they could literally do nothing for the rest of their lives and live in absolute mm-hmm. luxury, right? And there are plenty of rich people who do, in fact, do mm-hmm. just that. And people don't seem to have as much of a problem with that as with um, a poor family who's struggling to keep their three three children fed. You know, I mean, we we Getting should we should give them yeah. money to feed the children. And and the the thing about the 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 question of who is a non-worker, the vast majority of them are not people who have dropped out of the workforce and just want to sit on their butts mm. all day. Like, that's a, an extremely, extremely tiny number of people. Most of the non-workers are, you know, children, elderly, work-limiting disabled, maybe temporarily unemployed, but even they are a very small proportion of the overall uh, group of people who don't earn any income. Yeah. So, I mean, do we make children lazy by feeding them and, you know, giving them a house to live in? I don't I'm think so. I'm doing a social experiment right do now we, with that. I'll, I'll get back to you in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. I I think I turned out okay and I was fed and given a yeah. house, right? Uh so yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I I think that having perspective of okay, well, who is actually poor and why gives you a sense that oh, it's not because of laziness and lack of a job, it's because you know, you you live with your disabled uncle, you your spouse cares for the three kids while you're at home and you don't you just yeah. don't make enough to cover all of the people, yeah. right? And it it's also not like well-paying jobs are just out mm. there mm. for the taking. You know what I mean? Right. Like the jobs that a lot of people can get are like, you can make like eight bucks an hour at McDonald's, but that, you know, that's not, that's not going to, that's not actually going to yeah. feed you. Right. You know what I mean, like you could work right. 40 hours a week at $8 an hour and yeah. you'd still be in poverty. Well, and, and, um, who... Like when when people bring up that that point, right? They say, "Oh, you can just leave and get another job," right? Because you don't have any power to negotiate your actual income, right? The idea is that yeah, you're yeah. entering this free agreement, this uncoerced agreement. No one is forcing you, right? Um, and you can say no if you feel like the pay is too low. But the problem is that you're negotiating with your life, with the life of your family, yes. <laughs> whenever you're. Yes. When you, whenever you're getting employment, right? You can't really say, yeah. no, McDonald's, my family needs $16 an hour and I will walk if if you don't give it to me. Right. Because they'll that's be no, like, okay, no go walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not really the yeah, worst for it. The people who are suffering yeah. are you and your family. Yeah. yeah. So yes. you, don't, you just don't have the amount, like the amount of power an individual worker has versus, you know, McDonald's. Or even a, yeah. a small business, like they'll be able to yeah. find somebody else who also doesn't own any stuff, who can yeah. you know sell them their labor for this yeah. cheaper price. Right, the young person who lives alone, who doesn't live with their uncle, and doesn't right. need that much money. Right, you know, exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you mentioned then you kind of turned the laziness of the poor on its head, and you talked about how the um, the inherited wealth of the rich that they just were born into, and they didn't have to necessarily put the equity in to earn. Um, it, we, we're not as concerned about how that will leave them lazy. So we don't drive up wealth tax or, uh, you know, the, the tax that you give with 
inherited wealth. We don't drive that up to keep the wealthy from getting lazy. So I really appreciate the way that you're exposing maybe the duplicity. And I want to press into that because I've heard it said that we actually do live in a social democracy, but it's for corporations and wealthy people, not for middle class and poor people. Um, And I think what I've heard people name for that is like, you know, we bail out banks and we bail out car makers. Mm -hmm. Even when they make bad decisions, even when they break the law, even when they are violating federal regulation, even when they don't, quote, deserve it, uh, but we do it uh, over and over and over again, but then we don't have money for things like universal health care. Um, do you feel like that's a fair take or read on our economy? And if not, then how would you castigate it? I, I think that's a, a fairly fair critique. Um, I don't know that I would call it social democracy for those people, but you do have essentially, I mean, if you think about it, you do have somewhat collective ownership of wealth. It's just distributed amongst the very top of society because that's essentially what yeah. stocks and bonds are, those financial instruments, right? right? They own parts <laughs> of companies. You know, you, you don't directly um, like say, I own this factory and this machine. You say, I have so much in right. stock that represents those yeah. factories and machines and software and all that mm. sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but if, if you think about it, our institutions do not actually, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they do not actually work toward merit and thrift in the same way that they just say like, okay, if you already own a lot of stuff, we'll make this nice and easy for you. In part, because if you own a lot of stuff, you can, affect political power in a lot of ways, right? Yes. You can, uh, this happens all the time where companies will say like, hey, we want to build a factory in your town. Give us massive tax cuts and just basically bend uh, every every rule and regulation so that we can give you jobs and you can be the politician that got so many jobs to your community, right? That's Mm -hmm. an immense amount of power that is wielded by, you know, the board of directors, the the shareholders in that company yes. over yeah. a town that might need that tax revenue in order to keep their, their roads going. I mean, there are so many stories of, of town after town that will even do all of these things, essentially destroy themselves in order to make them ready for a company. And then the company is like, actually, we're going to build it over right. here. And we it got completely, a little bit of a better deal. Yeah. Right. It here. completely just screws over that community. <laughs> Um, yeah. And and this happens this happens all the time. We've we've built a system in which we we hand things over um, to people who already have large amounts of wealth and power. And I just can't imagine reading you know something like James five, uh, <laughs> where James yeah. castigates the the rich for uh, essentially fattening themselves up yeah. while they're workers toil away and yeah. their their pay is stolen which happens quite a lot wage theft in the united mm-hmm. states is greater than all other property com- uh, cr- crimes mm-hmm. combined in the wow. number of dollars uh, stolen so i mean yeah i'd say that's a fair yeah. critique yeah so so then maybe returning back to the bible um, for a moment you referenced, Ben, you referenced this, and Dawson, you just referenced James 5. We've talked about the Old Testament. There seems to be this arrangement of 
um, when God maybe set up the the govern the government, the politic of Israel was to provide for poor people out of the resources mm-hmm. of the many. Um, and it also seems to be what's happening like in Acts 6, right? Where there's some poor people not getting their food, and the apostles set up a group of people, a commission, to make sure that the uh, mm-hmm. there's a, a proper distribution of resources to others. Um, I, I, how do you explain, like, for people that claim to be a people of the book, how do you explain the disconnect between what's explicitly mm-hmm. commanded and described and taught versus the deflections and defenses we use to excuse ourselves for not doing it. Like, how do you explain that disconnect also? Mm. I don't know. I, I mean, for some people it's, I, I think it's different for different people. So for some people, they're true believers in capitalism and build elaborate defenses against the Bible uh, the main one is that it was like, oh, the, but this was private. This isn't the the government to, uh, to which you can look at the the government of Israel saying like you have to do the, the law says right. you have to do the jubilee that you have to leave the edges of your field for gleaning, right? Those mm-hmm. that it sort of falls mm-hmm. apart there. But particularly with the Book of Acts, it's like, well, it wasn't it wasn't the government. I think that's fairly weak. Um, considering the fact that they did not live in a place where they could vote. They weren't yeah. really um, in any sort of power in the way that, that we are. And it, and it certainly doesn't leave an excuse for actively saying we should, you know, cut down welfare benefits. Like that, that seems pretty, a, a pretty far leap from like, well, it was, they were a private group of, of believers. Well, well maybe this like, gets to then you go, I, something I want to name. <clears throat> it, uh, and I noticed this too with, um, you know, uh, there's a there is a so there's a there a book that I've committed before. We've we've talked to the author here on the podcast. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Have mm-hmm. you read that book, Austin? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I in have. In that book, Brandon O'Brien and Rudolph they talk about uh, the communal concept of humanity. That scripture scripture has a communal lens that sees individuals as part of a larger whole. And we live in, you know, 21st century West in an individualized culture where we primarily see humans as these, um, these self, uh, autonomous agents that have various connections to other people, but all those connections serve the autonomous self. And scripture doesn't see humanity or personhood like that at all. Uh, so, so one right. of the things that Scripture just assumes, and the church fathers talk about this. You mentioned uh, Basil earlier, Ben. I think before we hit record, that um, yep. that if you have more than you need, you're stealing from other people. Right. Yeah, that's that's like, the way that it's, it. it's not that you're hashtag blessed. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's not that. Well, now you have more. Now you can give more than ten percent. It's that if you have more than what mm-hmm. you need, you are stealing from other people. And I think that scandalizes us, right? We we hate that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, we're used to a world of poverty amid plenty, 
right? And you come up with those stories of like, oh, I'm hashtag blessed or, you know, those people need to work a little harder in order to justify this world of of poverty amidst plenty, which the early church and the Bible made made very little effort to justify. In fact, they they said this is this is a. under God's condemnation. This yeah. is this is not the way things ought to be. And there's nothing wrong with like having things. It's the idea that there's poverty amid our mm. plenty. We have gathered up so much for ourselves. We've built mm-hmm. entire institutions that funnel all these things to people who already have a lot while people barely you know, barely survive, who die because they yes. can't afford their insulin, who um, yes. can't feed their children appropriately. Like the, these sorts of things happening in our society while some people just fatten themselves up. It's not, I, I can't imagine reading the scripture and justifying that in particular. Yeah. But yes, yeah. no, the idea that we belong to each other and we have a responsibility to, to each other as human beings. Um, yes, be because we are not the center of the world as individuals, yeah. right? The society yeah. is not just whatever aggregate of individuals, but we, um, we are first of all. I, I think for Christians, this is really important. When we are baptized, it's it's telling us that we are first of all members of God's people. Yes, before we're even individuals. And this all comes back to the the fact that God is prior to us. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, but you're right on with the misreading scripture book. That was really a, another eye-opening sort of like, oh my goodness, I didn't, didn't realize mm-hmm. I looked at that things this way. That helped me name yeah. all the defensive mechanisms that were baked into my uh, frames about how I let myself off the hook from obeying the commands yeah. in scripture. Um Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing I, I'm thinking, Dawson, as I listen to you, is I think most Christians, most uh, red-blooded American patriotic capitalistic Christians, would agree with uh, the gross inequality and how um, you know true religion is caring for the widow and the orphan. Like um, they, you know, they agree with this. They, but we just have this allergy to someone telling me what someone taking my money from me and spending it in a way I don't want them to. And so I think we move directly to the solution is individualized charity rather than organized redistribution. Um, And and I wonder Mm -hmm. this too. Uh, There's a debate right now in the church, and we're doing this series on power and uh, gender and race. Uh, there, There is this division in the church between people that see white supremacy as a systemic injustice and people who see racism as an individual problem. And I, and I wonder if there's a parallel here, that, that white Christians in the West with individualized frames and lenses have a really difficult time reckoning with systemic structural mm-hmm. problems because the system and structure is engineered not to cause white, wealthy, affluent Christians' problems. <laughs> right. I, I think that's 100% valid. And, and I think you're recognizing something that's been um, 
to go into my discipline a little bit in the sociological for literature for a while, right? Um, Michael Emerson and Christian oh, Smith's book, Divided That book by changed faith. my life. Say the name of it again. You know, Say the classic. Name again. Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson yes. and Christian Smith. It, was, it came out in 2000. I believe Michael Emerson is doing... Uh, sort of update. He's basically re- like replicating everything he did in the initial study. Oh wow! Um, I don't know when that's going to be out, but you know it's been about yeah. twenty years. But they um, they recognize the phenomenon that uh, American evangelicals are anti-structuralist. Right? We both don't want to mm. see structural problems or structural solutions mm. to problems. And interesting. It's hard to know where exactly that comes from you know, where it originates, but it's hard to deny that that's uh, deeply ingrained yeah. within the culture. And, and yeah. there's a, uh, with that, there's a sort of a historicism that I think might have to do with uh, evangelicalism uh, theologically, at least a little bit. Um, but the failure to understand yourself as not only a part of a, a larger human community, but as a part of a history that you are in some ways responsible to, right? So hmm. I, I I don't think that that's possible, really, if you're a faithful reader of the Scripture. We've been grafted in um, to God's people who yeah. have this history. Like, we're, yeah. like you said, people of the book. This is our story, and we story ourselves. Even though we didn't do any of the things yeah. in the Bible, right? We belong to a people with a history. Mm-hmm. Um and you see that all throughout the whole the Old Testament, mm. recognizing that you you actually yes. belong to a history, and there's it has something to do with you, even if you yeah. didn't do it. But American Christians, you know, particularly when it comes to race, they're like, "Oh, I didn't do that." Um, but yeah. the funny thing is, they yeah. they they do want to say like, "Oh, we America was founded, and we were this free society, and we yeah. wrote the Declaration yeah. and the, it, all that sort of stuff." Right? They'll claim it when it seems like this is. To my eyes, something good that I want, right? Yeah. But I can yeah. choose when it's something bad that I don't want to not have to. You know. Suddenly, I'm an individual, right? Exactly. Yeah, well, and that, I, I think that's an, a very individualistic way of looking at it, though. Is the sort of a la carte? I'll pick up what I want, and I will right. leave what I don't want. Um, yeah. But we have to recognize wonder, that we're we're responsible. Yes. Not necessarily responsible in the fact that you did those things. Like I did not. Right do those things, but I still have to account for, okay, what does that mean now? Yeah. Yeah. We've inherited a society where white families have 16 times Mm -hmm. as much wealth as black families. That that's, that's part of the consequence. That's real life. That's today. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and no, I didn't create those conditions personally, probably. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's part of our discipleship to Jesus to reckon with the fact that I benefit from it. And, you know, I might be, you know, being addressed by James 5 as somebody who has inherited wealth um, that was stolen from the poor, perhaps, you know. Um, I need to think of myself as being addressed by St. Basil, you know, when he says the bread that you're holding back is for the hungry, the clothes that you keep put away are for the naked. Um, and so, I think, I, think, I think you're right, Dawson. I think we need to take seriously um, in our discipleship to Jesus a lot of this, a lot of this stuff and the ways that we, I think, I think it's, it's just a more flattering story to tell about ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we can just think, Oh, I am hashtag blessed, but there's kind of behind that is a little, a little bit of like, and I, and I kind of deserve it. You know, like I, I'm right. kind of a self-made person. Um, I, I, I did this myself rather than realizing 
no, I, I didn't merit any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it is. I think now. it's some of the interference or uh, blindness, if you will, that we can't even talk about, mm-hmm. we can't even critique capitalism and talk about the merits of socialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not, not to be confused by, um, uh, we, we can't even have that discussion without triggering people and having a reaction yeah. or being labeled as a godless person or uh, immediately Venezuela or communist China gets thrown around. Um, by the way, China's mm-hmm. not really communist, but that's a whole nother. I mean, they, they got way more <laughs> going on than just communism. <laughs> so one rabbit trail I didn't quite get to is the practical answer to the, uh, the objection. Oh, well, we should just have private charity or churches mm. uh, do all of it. And let me see if I can grab my piece here. But you you can just do some back of the napkin math and see, okay, how how would that work? Do we okay. is it is it possible? Yeah. And the answer is it is not remotely possible. <laughs> um, so you can take something. So let's pretend we take away uh, welfare, right? Uh-huh. We we did that before, and we re- we ended up with twenty five percent of people in poverty. Right. But then there's another figure called the poverty gap. So you take all of those people in poverty and you ask, how far are they from the poverty line? How much money would it take for them to not be poor anymore? Okay. And you right. add all of that up. So you basically can get the number that it would take to wipe away poverty. Um, so in 2018, I think it was, yeah, 2018, $511.7 billion, So a little over a half trillion dollars to erase all poverty all and that same year all charitable giving of any kind to universities to art galleries to churches to you know health organizations any kind of nonprofit giving was 427.7 billion dollars so you're almost 100 billion dollars short and that's if you took every charitable giving dollar and directed it perfectly to, to somebody who, who like just straight into the pockets of somebody who needed uh, poverty yeah. relief. Like yeah. there's no administration costs. There's no inefficiency allowed and you're still not ending poverty. You're still you just can't short. do it. Yeah. Um, and, and even if giving to churches inflated to the size of all charitable giving, right? It would be amazing if all charitable giving to churches were $427 billion, right? It would be mm-hmm. inc- this incredible surge in giving where everyone is giving like over 10%. Yeah. And somehow you would still not be able to do it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. the church probably wouldn't spend 100% of that money. You would, you would like to think they'd spend a large chunk of it, um, you know, giving it to, to poor folks. But then the other practical question is, yeah. um, if you're doing it uh, based on the church, the church is in the United States a voluntary organization, Right. Right. It's it's uh, and we have a whole lot of different denominations and all of that sort of stuff, and we have a very economically segregated society. Churches yep. generally serve the people who live nearby, right? So you could have a church in an affluent suburb, you could have mm-hmm. a church in a very poor neighborhood, and what would happen is the church in the affluent suburb has all the resources; they're getting all the giving, mm. but the church in the poor neighborhood. They have all the needs, but they're not getting nearly as ma- as many resources as the church, right. you know, out in the suburbs. Yeah. And I think that it's really critically important while we still don't have 
uh, anything like the welfare state infrastructure it would take to dramatically reduce poverty, that churches are, you know, directly giving to poor people in their midst. There's absolutely no excuse for not doing that, right? You shouldn't take anything Mm. I'm saying as, you know, I'm opposed to benevolence funds (laughs) in churches or even churches collaborating, you know, across distances in order to meet the needs in other other churches that, that have more people in poverty. But as as a question of can you actually would you ever actually be practically able to do it uh, the answer is absolutely not it's yeah. it, and and it's depressingly so but yeah. I, I i don't think most of the people making that argument have thought through okay what would be the practical steps it would take and how yeah. Yeah. how far away is that goal yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's not a it's not a carefully thought through uh, argument. It's a it's a knee jerk defense right. against mm. the idea that sort of rubs rubs me the wrong way, right? Um, so that's re- that's really helpful, man. Mm. Just to know, hey, hey, practically that's not even possible, right? Even yeah. if it was, uh, even if it was commendable. So right, and again, I don't I don't think it's like a bad idea for churches to care for the poor. They, we absolutely have a mandate right. to care for people's yes. needs and there are needs beyond yes. just, you know, I need money for rent that yes. we can also, also meet, you know, helping people, you know, if, if poverty yeah. has driven you to substance dependence, we can help people find resources yeah. to, to work through that yeah. spiritual needs. Obviously all of those things, the church can still do. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's not, and, we're not trying to take away no. the province of the church. We're just recognizing no. the church is already not well, doing this because it's impossible. Yeah. And you could you could almost argue that what we're doing is adding to the church's ability to advocate on behalf of the poor because not only can we deal with the symptoms of an economy that creates poor people, we can also advocate to change the way the economy works so we don't have poor people. Exactly. There we go. We're right on the money. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. It, yeah. Can I just register one more thing? Yeah. I already give the local state and federal government money i don't get to choose how they spend it they spend it in ways that i don't like yeah and i still give charitable giving so just because the government takes my money doesn't mean i can't also give what i want to give to other things yeah it's not like it's as one or the other yeah. right and, right in in the thing that i think uh my friend from Sweden that we talked to said to me offline was um, when you have an organization that uh, when you have a a larger structure that takes collective money and spends it in collective ways to do the kinds of things you're talking about, Dawson, you find that you don't need some of the money you used to need. I'm going to get an eye eye doctor appointment today. I don't have eye insurance Mm -hmm. uh, because it's Mm -hmm. astronomically high. Yeah. Um, they asked me like six times if I had insurance. I think they're like begging me to have insurance, and I keep telling them, "No, I don't have insurance." Right? Just charge um, me the cash rate. But but like if 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 we had universal health care, I yeah. would have more money, right. regardless of how much money. Like I'd have more freed up capital, regardless if I'm paying more into a social pot that pays for the universal health care. But right. today I'm going to write a check for three hundred and twenty dollars. That's not in the family budget, really. Because I can't see, I can barely see you, Dawson. You're very handsome, by the way, blurry. Uh, but like, I, I just can't. I can't. So anyway, I, it, to me, it's like, um, I, I guess I want to register hmm. the fact that I give entities money who spend it in ways that I have a very little control over. 
doesn't compromise my ability to be generous or yeah. charitable. Yeah. So it's not an either or. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It already isn't an either or. Yeah. Right. And we, and we, you know, obviously want there to be more say that ordinary people feel like they have in, you know, mm-hmm. how, you know, you, you know, we, more democracy would probably be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're right. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't take away even the charitable organization's abilities, right? I've, I've worked in a, in a nonprofit. It was a, it was a nonprofit school. And basically mm. all you're doing all day long in, a lot of nonprofits is just bailing out uh, a ship that has a giant gash in the hull, right? And you got this little bucket, and you're just yeah. trying to dump it over the edge, right? Yeah. People who live, who uh, just live in the world of of nonprofits, uh, particularly that are aimed at you know allevi- yeah. alleviating the effects of poverty, they know yeah. that you yeah. can't. This is just a fool's game to think that those organizations yeah. can just all of a sudden, you know, make it make the problems melt away because you know yeah. people are going to keep showing up because their problems are produced by big systems, <laughs> the, yeah. our our economy. <laughs> that, yeah. That's how it works. It's awesome, man. I, yeah. I think we've got to we've got to ask those questions. Yeah. Despite this quote keeps coming to mind. Despite uh, Dom Helder Kamara. Uh, said this. Where'd this is uh, stuck with me for a while. I, for some reason, I don't know. Where, I don't even know uh, where I, he served. I think he was a Catholic priest. He oh. basically said this. He said, um, "When I give to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist." Jeez. <laughs> but we've got Dawson. We've got to ask. Jeez. We've got to ask that question. Basically, I think that that's that's what you're saying. We have to ask why are they poor instead of just kind of uh, taking our little bucket of uh, whatever we can afford and trying to throw it, you know, throw yeah. it in their direction. I think and there has to be systemic uh, solutions to these right. injustices. Yes. Why not both? I think, yes. Why not I, both? And I think what you've said here, Dawson, is that we get past because they're lazy, because they don't work hard, um, because they don't have fathers. Like, we, we can actually say, yeah, there are some people that are lazy and don't work hard, but not everyone there will always be people that doesn't that doesn't um, fit, and uh, people aren't the sum of their individual choices. So there's mm-hmm. there's a larger way that we're constituted yeah. as humans. That white people, if I can just speak to the white people, we have to learn to see this. Yeah, black, brown, non-Western people, Native people, uh, other people of color are have been telling us for centuries mm-hmm. that our noetic architecture is insufficient to reckon yeah. with all of reality. And it's and I think this yeah. is another conversation that helps us see why it's so important that we actually reconstitute the way we understand ourselves as humans. Yeah, there's so much there, man. Like, even if they are lazy, do they not deserve mercy? <laughs> you right. Know, We've should received they die the meritless because they're lazy? Jesus. Should they die? Yes. Is that what is that what you want? Anyway. Anyway. Right. Even the wicked, I don't think we should, I mean, even the wicked are made in God's image and yeah. deserve every possible chance to, Yes, uh, I, I shouldn't even say they, they deserve. We right. do not have the authority under God to withhold from them the ability to exercise um, their uh, co-rule with God over creation by depriving them of basic material needs. That That is not the... 
That is not the answer to any wickedness is to deny people. Increasing the pain of the poor may encourage them to be rich. It hasn't worked right? so far, isn't, so isn't it like if we if we take away the concept? So th- so uh, I know that we're just going way into OT here, but there there is a an assumption that we have in the West that to be wealthy is virtuous and to be poor is a vice, and that if we take away the penalty that the poor experience for their poverty, they yeah. will no longer have the motivation to be wealthy or to help themselves. Yeah. And this is wrong on so many levels, yeah. like so many levels. But the first is, if we're a Christian, we have entered a kingdom that is fundamentally not based on individual merit. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so what it means to be a Christian is to live in an, a, a politic, a social arrangement, where our relationships and our possessions no longer function on who deserves it and who doesn't but it functions on uh, an abundance of grace. I mean, this is Acts 2 and Acts 4. This mm-hmm. is why people die when they uh, withhold and lie about it. So, <laughs> like, we, this is it. Like, we function as a meritocratic uh, people who profess to believe in a king that undoes all meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the meritocracy is a myth. Even if, even, but right. we're saying even if the myth okay. were true, okay. it would not even be good. Even if the myth were true, it wouldn't right. be good. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, that's not. But it's, it's not, not a Christian true. myth, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a very it's a much more flattering story. If I do come into wealth, man, it's just it's way more flattering for me to think, yeah, I worked really hard, than mm-hmm. for me to think, man, I got lucky. <laughs> right. You know. Like it's just more flat. I think that's I think that's part of the key here. Is just man, it's just a more flattering story I can tell about myself mm-hmm. that I worked really hard. I worked really hard for everything I had, you know. Yeah. Um, when yeah. what's where is the direct correspondence between hard work and right. owning a lot of stuff? It's oh, yeah. it's not it's, there. It's not there yeah. at all. Yep. Dawson, I really appreciate the work you're doing. How you're fighting for biblical fidelity in a re a new social and economic imaginary that helps us be more faithful and help helping yeah. me as a white Christian who has primarily individualized frames to see the structural systemic choices we've made economically and how they contribute to and are complicit in the problems we're experiencing. Um, and just saying, hey, maybe we could try this. <laughs> and here's two or three <laughs> examples of countries or economies that have tried this, and they don't have those problems, you know? And yeah, um, and yeah. you don't have to uh, pledge your allegiance to Satan to entertain it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, we were laughing yeah. about this, but if that feels like an amazing yeah. sigh of relief, freedom, to yeah. just have that permission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to say yes. thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about this with us. I think a lot of pastors and leaders mm-hmm. don't know how to talk about this. They uh, they feel reticent. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to cause a f- they don't want to cause division. At the same time, there's all kinds of questions going on, and um, you know it's hard to get it's hard to get like clear thinking about this. Maybe maybe as we close, where can people find you? You mentioned your uh, Evangelical Labor Institute. Where can people find that? How can people connect with you to read more about what you've written? Yeah, so you can find the Evangelical Labor Institute at evangelicallabor.institute. Mm-hmm. Or on Twitter at eLabor Institute. 
Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Dawson Vosberg. Okay. Great, Dawson. Well, all right. You know, we're recording yes, this. Thank you so much. We're recording this a few days after um, uh, the Capitol was uh, seized. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, you know, Briefly, we hope that when yeah. we release this, we still have a republic. And there's, uh, you know, still an economy to talk about. So, um, bless you, man. Uh, have a great... Well, there'll be some, some kind, kind of, of economy, economy will be here. No matter what. Uh, bless right. you, man. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Matt and Ben. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.